0: Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when you put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. I, I, people give me tons of um, ideas on this
1: one. I keep reading new you know, psychological theories and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was under pressure, or I was a bit tired or I was lonely or I fell down the stairs when I was a child or whatever. Uh, You're no picnic, alright? You're a spoiled little brat even, but under that, you the most amazingly astounding, wonderful girl, woman, that I've ever known. Party on,
0: Wayne. Party on, girl.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Bell Getting By, the long 1990s. So, in at the outset of this episode about white masculinity in the 1990s, we quoted the esteemed critic Vanilla Ice and his reflections on what he called the greatest decade. One of his references was to Wayne's world, I'm going to ask Emma to talk to me a little bit about Wayne's World because I think it might have become quite apparent that I'm a little bit lost when it comes to ninety references to 90s American masculinity in the previous two installments. So, Emma, tell me, why was why was Vanilla Rice talking about Wayne's, Wayne's World as this
0: sort of cultural touchstone for the 1990s in America? Well, do you know what? I was... Um quite surprised that apparently I actually know more about Wayne's World than I thought I did, and and Vanilla Ice talking about the importance of Wayne's World has has really brought up a lot for me. So, so Wayne's World is a film that was released in 1992, so right at the start of the decade. Party on Wayne! Party on Garth! Wayne's World! Wayne's World!
1: Party time!
0: Accident! And we're clear. And it is about two um, kind of 90s grunge guys who have a TV show and it kind of follows their their exploits. It stars Mike Myers, who um, many people will, of course, be familiar with, you know, as Austin Powers and etc. So, Wayne's World I think is a really interesting cultural reference point for Vanilla Ice to bring up um, because it is it is quite a silly film. Like it, it, the whole point is that it's a comedy, but it's also exploring a particular type of '90s masculinity. And we talked about how you know Vanilla Ice's kind of frame for the '90s was so male, but Wayne's World is interesting because I think it's exploring a kind of a very different kind of masculinity than the types that we've talked about in earlier installments. So through the char- one of the characters, for example, who's called Garth, and he's played by Dana Carvey, he's um, extremely quiet and shy. He's got long blonde hair. He's really awkward, and he's kind of awed, um, even terrified and, and overwhelmed by powerful women. Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> 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 no, neither did I. I was, I was just asking. So Garth in particular, I think, is representative of a, a different kind of 90s masculinity that almost verges on a kind of androgyny. You know, it's it's kind of boyish men with really long hair and and things like shapeless check shirts as their favoured clothing. Um, so what Wayne's World is doing, of course, is, I suppose, connecting the 80s and the 90s through music um, particularly through grunge music.
1: Okay, so tell me more about grunge because that is, you know, it's kind of a seminal moment in 90s, 90s culture, which, again, is something I, I learnt about through vicariously through my older brothers but I don't have many memories of. <laughs>
0: Um yeah, I, I learned about it I guess, through my older older cousins. Um but Grunge as a as a phenomenon, as a musical phenomenon, um, emerged out of Seattle, out of Washington State in the United States in the late 1980s. Um and it's kind of born out of 80s heavy metal and post punk alternative rock. Um I, I will kind of say that, you know, I'm obviously not an expert in musical genres, but they are kind of like Decades in the sense that they are arbitrary, you know, whereas musical genres are very much interchangeable and, and overlap. But we are, in, when we're talking about 90s grunge, we are of course talking about bands like Nirvana, which is fronted by Kurt Cobain, that formed in Washington State outside of Seattle in 1987, and then bands like Pearl Jam, which is also born in Seattle in 1990 and is fronted by a guy called Eddie Vedder. So I'm not. I guess when in this discussion of grunge, I don't want to talk about the impact of the music itself because, as I just said, we're you know we're not experts in music and music history, um, and there's no way I can really do justice to grunge as a as a musical phenomenon. But I think it's really important to look at the cultural and historical impact of grunge, and particularly when I'm talking about these bands grunge's relationship to gender when we're talking about 90s masculinity. Yeah,
1: and I don't think I don't think it would surprise anyone who has even a, really a brief acquaintance with the history of pop and rock music to hear that these bands were mostly fronted by men, but there was they, they they did embody this alternative kind of masculinity that you've already spoken about, and there were bands who were sort of associated with that scene who were fronted by women, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, they totally were, and I, I think we'll kind of we will absolutely speak about the role of of women in in grunge as a movement, but the bands like the bands that immediately come to mind, you know, the Pearl Jam's, the the Nirvanas, are uh, exactly as you say, Chloe. They're they're fronted by men. They're the members are all men. Um, and they embody this as you say kind of particular form of of masculinity they have this um long hair that often you know covers their faces they wear oversized check shirts and baggy jeans that are are worn with sorry that are worn precisely to obscure body shapes um so they they kind of Attempt a sort of androgyny, and then somebody like Kurt Cobain, I guess, goes even further. You know, he's often wearing dresses, he paints his nails, and and does things like that. So, so grunge, in that way, I guess, is a is a really open and explicit rejection of the kind of aggressive hyper masculinity of nineteen eighties metal. But also um, wrapped up in that, it's a rejection of the, I guess, hyper femininity of. Um, things like hair metal the kind of spandex and and makeup of, of what we'd think of as a 19, like iconic 1980s music. So it's a kind of I guess it's a 90s you know we don't give we don't care what you think attitude we don't care what we look like and and also I think a, a kind of rejection of the, the rampant selfishness and the shallowness of, of 90s consumerist culture that we've spoken about a lot already Chloe Grunge's kind of a rejection of that.
1: Yeah, I think what your descriptions put me in mind of were a lot of things that were happening in in women's fashion in the 1980s. So, you know, spandex and hairspray, they weren't reserved for men. They were statements about power and that are particularly identified, you know, and this probably seemed like an odd connection to make, um, for women less with the metal scene and more with their, you know, with women's ascendancy up the corporate ladder. So yeah there's more I guess there's more to it than embracing femininity it's it is that that rejection like you say of the 1980s and the 1980s fixation on power
0: Yeah absolutely and and in grunge women and men are both doing that you know they're rejecting that kind of 80s power dressing uh, you know that's emblematic of Reagan's 1980s America but it's also rejecting i think the kind of bright-eyed optimism of of Clinton's politics you know it's it's pointing out, I guess, the hypocrisy of American politics and culture at the same time. And, that, and that's also born out of the fact that this, this movement comes out of Seattle as a, as a particularly, um, I guess, post-industrial city in, in 1980s and 19, early 1990s America.
1: I think yeah, I think it's it's interesting to think about the role that Seattle, in particular, plays in this scene, and also more broadly in the politics of the nineteen nineties. Because I think you know a lot of people listening will be familiar with the kind of both the, the symbolics of the post-industrial city, which is certainly something that's more and more familiar as we see America and its you know its trajectory into decline. Seattle is an interesting case study in that because it is one of those cities that was enormously prosperous in sort of the mid-century post Second World War period. It then went through a lot of, like a great shock um, and some de- and decline in the in the nineteen seventies. But it was rejuvenated, use that word advisedly, by the entry of a lot of major tech companies into the city in the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands. So, it's an interesting city because I think it's a place of deep contrasts. And these can be explosive, as we see in, you know, this music scene that both that came out of Seattle and had, you know, a a national and even a global influence. But also the fact that, you know, we so we spoke about, I think, in a really early episode of this series about protests against against globalization in the 1990s. And Seattle was a center point for a lot of those protests in 1999.
0: That's right. Yeah. So Seattle is home to um some pretty radical politics. I think during during this decade and and earlier, and I think. You know, if we go back to our discussion of, of masculinity, I think a lot of people involved in the movement um, and and I guess Gen X's in particular who were who were following grunge in Seattle in the 1990s are uh, arguing that the men coming out of Seattle are, are quite radical so-called um, new men who, unlike their predecessors, um, are embracing feminism. So one article I, I read um, as I was preparing for this even said that the grunge, in the grunge movement, um, gender constructs became virtually meaningless, which is a big call. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, and I think I think you definitely and a lot of people have done this before us. This is not really an original thought, but you have to position grunge as part of what and you know. I've said before that I don't really like using the term waves to describe movements in feminism, but it is part of what's called, you know, the third wave, third wave feminism, or more generally, kind of a rejection of the feminism of the of the '80s. And how do you
0: how do you think that manifests in the '90s? Like not just with grunge, but kind of more more broadly.
1: Well, I think. So where feminism for, you know, decades and even, you know, really really a, ho- a full century before the 90s had focused very much on formal achievements, so things like voting rights and legal rights, technically these were mostly complete by the 90s. So in the 1990s we saw this reaction by women to the kind of, the, I guess, the completion of the feminist project in that sense by either... But either they're showing their disgust at the limits of it. So, you know, we have this ongoing bubbling issue of sexual harassment, for instance, which, you know, was going on in the 90s, as we know, and it has, still hasn't been resolved today. But we also see that some women were became more focused on feminism outside of politics, so feminism that was taking place in places like culture, so within the grunge movement. And what that also meant is that feminism could mean more things than ever. So... You know the idea of intersectionality was devised around this time, and that was popularised in the early '90s, which is basically saying that different oppressions that affect women—so oppression of race, oppression of class, oppression on, on um, of sexuality—they could intersect and they could combine in different ways at the same time. And this is, you know, this is why I really don't like describing it as a third wave. I think it was more of a cult, you know a really diffuse cultural moment. There was also a big emphasis on individualism and women seeking individual pleasure and experimenting with their femininity, which I think, again, ties this to grunge, but that's something that could be incredibly diffuse. So, you know, you could say that women associated with the grunge scene, riot girls, who I think you're going to speak about, I'd hope you're going to speak about in a minute, and even the Spice Girls could all conceivably be feminists, despite they not actually having that much in common, at least at the level of their
0: aesthetic. Yeah, and I think you're right You're right to bring up the aesthetic because, of course, the aesthetics of grunge and the aesthetics of the Spice Girls are, are so different and that's why maybe we shouldn't speak, as you say, about waves of feminism because what we're talking about is so different. And, and I think it's really interesting that that article I read, you know, said that the kind of gender roles had disappeared in grunge because – of course, that's not true, um, but that doesn't mean that women aren't playing a part. You know, I spoke about these kind of male dominated bands, but women women do play a, a really important and and quite visible role in grunge in the 1990s. You know, of course, um, you can't really speak about someone like Kurt Cobain without also speaking about Courtney Love, who is married to Kurt Cobain, but also funds her own Grunge band in in the band whole. We also have you know bands like Smashing Pumpkins, which have a woman bass player. Um, Garbage have a have a woman singer, although they're I guess kind of post grunge. Again, you know genres overlap and change. Um, but Chloe also mentioned Riot Girl, which is a, a really important movement when it comes to. Um, punk and grunge. So Riot Girl kind of emerges in Seattle as well, in, in Washington State, out of the punk slash grunge movement. And and what it is is young women in particular kind of recognising that punk um, and then grunge has shut them out, has kind of deliberately shut them out. And so this is women carving out a space for themselves through music, um, through writing, through art, and, and being really loud and really vocal about wanting their own space and deserving their own space, Um just as men have, and I think you know that has that had implications in in mainstream or mainstream popular culture at the time. To go back to that you know cultural touchstone that is Wayne's World, um, that story is is partly set around the character of a an extremely cool, talented, strong woman rocker who, who the character Cassandra, who's played by Tia Carrere, and she's really important in the film. Um, and and kind of embodies the, the grunge woman who's talented, who doesn't care what you think. Um look, I've very dim memories of Wayne's world, but I'm I don't did did gender roles disappear in that movie? No, unsurprisingly, they they did not. And and this is where I guess, you know, my big problem with that assertion comes out because the character of Cassandra is still almost entirely focused on men. You know, she's a strong woman, but she's still, you know, so naive that she needs rescuing by Mike Myers character from another kind of evil man. You know, she's, she's too kind of gentle and naive to see his um, evil plans for her. And a lot of the story of the film is men fighting over this character. So, so the women who are there kind of, as I said, they're still focused on men and they stand out because they're not men. You know, they are, I guess, kind of unique and, and hyper-visible purely because they're women. Um, and that plays out in the real world of grunge as well. You know, when I mentioned Courtney Love, um, you know, when you speak about her, she is never really, despite the fact that she's married to Kurt Cobain, she's never really considered his equal um, musically or intellectually or, or whatever. You know, in some popular biographies that you read that I have read, you know, she is kind of, she's the bad guy. You know, everything bad that happened to Kurt is kind Courtney's fault which which I think you know for me at least it kind of goes back to what I said what I've been saying I guess throughout this episode is you know that the bands that we're talking about the ones that are regarded as the most important the most significant you know the ones that have had the biggest and most lasting cultural and musical impact are men who work with men and men who tell stories that revolve around men. So I guess what you're saying is that
1: grunge despite the fact that it had this you know very i guess liberating aesthetic and ideas around sexual norms and gender roles it was still sexist
0: yeah i think it was you know and and i think sometimes there's a danger of you know criticizing everything like nothing is ever good enough i think academics in particular can be really bad about that but but having said that you know i would argue that grunge was and is deeply sexist and and there's one story in particular that comes to mind about that um which is that you know we've I've spoken so much about Cobain because he's so central to to this story and to this movement um the idea for the title of, of one of his most important contributions to Grund, Smells Like Teen Spirit, um, which is, you know, indelibly associated, of course, with him, actually... I think it's also th- indelibly associated with the 1990s as a whole. Like, it is, it is, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, I, I reckon you could quite safely argue that it's the song of the 90s. I mean, I think you can too. It is so significant, and of course, he he wrote it. But the the title smells like team spirit. Actually, came from his friend Kathleen Hanna, who was the lead singer of the Riot Girl band, Bikini Kill. Um, she kind of she scrawled it on the wall, and and he took it for a title. And you know, like like I said, you know, maybe there's there is a risk of being over, overly critical. Maybe I'm being uncharitable, but I think it says a lot that the title of this song, Chloe, as you said, that kind of defined a generation, um, a musical generation, came from a woman, but all of the credit, all of the credit goes to a man. I don't want to obscure the agency of, of so many women who are involved in grunge, and particularly those women who, like Kathleen Hanna, who are driving the Riot Girl movement. Um, so I guess I want to be clear that I'm speaking personally, but I think for, for a lot of women you know, it wasn't their experience that, that gender was erased and that gender distinctions became irrelevant and grunge. I think for a lot of women of our generation, as we kind of reflect on the 1990s, this does feel very personal because we've, we've constantly, constantly been told, you know, in the 90s we were told that kind of, as you say, Chloe, the, the feminist project was complete, that, you know, we had achieved the equality that our mothers and our forebears were striving for. And we're told that, you know, this, this filters through into into popular culture. You know, the, the music we love has disappeared gender. It now considers us equals. And, like, I don't know about you, but, you know, 14-year-old me kind of believed that. I thought that the music was for me too. But I think as I get older, I kind of realised that that wasn't the case. You know, um, women were always peripheral. Like, we could enjoy the music. Um, and, and a few really lucky ones did get, accepted and were allowed to participate in that movement. But, oh, my God, they had to fight so hard to get in and they're still fighting for the recognition that they deserve. And that's because, you know, this kind of music was never really for or about us. So I guess what I'm saying is that, for me, this is a kind of um, – this has tied up my, my relationship with grunge and, and the role that grunge plays in, in the history of gender – for me, there's a kind of, I guess, a lingering confusion and resentment about the feminism and the masculinity of the 1990s.
1: Yeah, and I and I think for me, who was clearly less cool than you as a child in the 90s, I my experience was that when women did force themselves to the centre of culture, that was the Spice Girls, whose whose politics we've spoken about before, and you know their their individualism and kind of the limits of the Spice Girls feminism. But also they they came to the Central Power because they were allowed they were, because they were allowed to. And they were permitted to, on terms that were strictly outlined for them basically by music industry executives. Um, there's been, you know, several times over the years attempts to reclaim the Spice Girls for feminism, and I haven't been thoroughly convinced by them, to be honest. So on that um on that candid admission of my deeply uncool childhood we're going to be wrapping up this episode and next week we're going to be wrapping up this series as a whole and we're going to look back over the 1990s and try to answer the question that we set out with in this series the long 1990s and find out if the 1990s ever really ended.
0: Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.